I want to start with a parable today. Uh, There once was a man, and he loved peanut butter sandwiches. He loved them so much that he ate peanut butter sandwiches every day. He would put two, sometimes even three times the normal amount of peanut butter on his peanut butter sandwiches. So much peanut butter that he needed two glasses of cold milk to get through the peanut butter on his sandwich. And this man loved peanut butter so much that he ate them every day for lunch in the company cafeteria. Well, this man, he also had a friend who enjoyed peanut butter, but this person had a peanut butter sandwich once a week or perhaps twice a week. One day, the boss called both of these two men into his office and he said, I know that you both regularly have peanut butter sandwiches and I want to talk to you about that. You see, we just hired a new employee and she has a severe peanut allergy. She can't even be in the same room as peanuts or peanut butter or somebody who's eaten any of those things. And immediately, the first man, the one who loved peanut butter so much, said, well then, There's only one thing for me to do. I must stop eating my peanut butter sandwiches at work. And the second man said, well, hold on a second. Hold on. There's nothing against the law about me eating a peanut butter sandwich, is there? Well, no, there isn't. There's nothing in the employee handbook about me eating a peanut butter sandwich, is it? Well, no. Well, then why should I have to change what I enjoy doing so much just because this one person has a problem with it? If she can't be around peanut butter, then she should eat lunch in a different cafeteria. I posed the question to you this morning at the end of our parable, which man was right? Which man was right? You can talk in church. I hereby absolve you of any punishment that you may have formerly had for talking in church. Which man was right? I'm hearing both. I'm hearing first. I think the first man was right. I mean, the second man was technically right. But in regard to conscience, I'm going to go with the first man. They're both completely free to eat peanut butter. They have every right to eat peanut butter. But maybe they shouldn't eat peanut butter. Here's the point I want to draw. Freedom isn't about what you can do. It's about what you should do. Freedom isn't about what you can do. It's about what you should do. Now, hold on to that thought. We're going to come back to it here in a little bit. But uh, this is our third week in our sermon series, A Church That Needs Corinthians. And if you're just joining us, it's your first week with us. Here's the idea. If we are reaching people who are actually far from God, it's not going to be neat and tidy and fit into our uh, little box and understanding of how we uh, think about Christianity. People who are far from God have problems that originate far from God. And so if we are reaching people who are far from God, it's going to be messy. In fact, we may have to open up the messiest book in the New Testament to look for some wisdom on how to proceed. So I don't know about you, but I want to be a church that needs to read Corinthians. Today we're going to ask a difficult question. It's the question of Christian freedom, and here's how it goes. Uh, We know how to act. We know how to act when things are absolutely wrong. 
We know how to act when things are absolutely wrong, and we organize our lives accordingly. Not perfectly, but accordingly. We not act when something is just absolutely, definitively wrong. Don't murder, don't steal, don't lie. Those things are wrong. We know it. We try not to do those things. How do we handle something when the Bible doesn't spell it out for us? What happens when the issue at hand offends us, but it doesn't offend God? What happens if another Christian is uncomfortable with something, but we aren't? How does Christian freedom work? Let's open up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we'll begin to answer that question. By the way, if you're a guest here with us this morning, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Um, We're going to have all of the text up on the screen, and I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Um, I also want to let you know that in your bulletin, there's a fill-in-the-blank sermon outline that's going to help you track with me and take some notes. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 1. Now regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge about this issue. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. So what about eating meat that's been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god and that there's only one god. There may be so-called gods both in heaven and on earth, and some people actually worship many of those gods and those lords. But for us, there is one God, the Father by whom all things were created and for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom, we, uh, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. However, not all believers know this. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real. So when they eat the food that has been offered to idols, they think of it as the worship of real gods. And their weak consciences are violated. It's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat, and we don't gain anything if we do. But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. For if others see you with your superior knowledge eating in the temple of an idol won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that's been offered to an idol so because of your superior knowledge a weak believer for whom christ died will be destroyed and when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong you're sinning against christ So if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live. For I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. The problem that Paul uses to address this question of Christian freedom is meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And if Paul stood in the middle of Corinth, right in the middle of the town square, and asked everybody in all of Corinth to be there, and he asked the question, should you or should you not eat meat sacrificed to idols? Some of them would say yes, and some of them would say no. And do you know who would be right? Both of them. They'd both be right. In some matters, there is absolute right and there is absolute wrong. and others, there is neither. 
They're matters of moral indifference and spiritual inconsequence. They permit difference of opinion and independence of action. In Corinth, the question was, should we eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? Today, we aren't going to worry about that. We don't have to ask that question on a daily basis, but we do have other questions that may come up in our day-to-day life. Should you wear Nike? Should you watch NFL football? Should you vote for a Republican or a Democrat? Should you shop at Target or Home Depot? Should you drink Starbucks? Should you go to Disney World? Should your kids go trick-or-treating? You know what the answer to all those questions is? You decide. You decide, and whatever you decide is right. It's not wrong. Whatever you decide on all of those questions and a thousand more is correct. It's not wrong. It is wrong when we make our decisions a condition for someone else's salvation. You see that? So you can decide whatever you want on those issues. I'm never going to Starbucks again for the rest of my life. I never want to walk into a Home Depot. I'm never going to turn on an NFL football game again for the rest of my life. You decide that. You own that. You live that. But when you make that a condition for someone else's salvation, that's when we've entered dangerous territory. It's a personal decision. So make your decision and live that way. But don't make it a test of salvation for somebody else and don't make it a test of fellowship. For somebody else all of us are going to make decisions on those points some of us are going to decide differently that's okay i'm not going to stand up here and say wear nike i'm not going to stand up here and say shop at home depot but here's the opposite side of the coin i'm not going to say don't we have freedom to decide those things on our own and we have a responsibility to respect someone else's position Bob Russell recently wrote an article on the idea of boycotting Nike, and here's one of the reasons he gave against it. He said, boycotts divide Christians. Those who don't join the boycott are criticized as disloyal by those who do. Frequently, harsh words are exchanged and Christian friends are alienated from one another. The Scripture encourages us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of of peace we have freedom as christians and as we think about our freedom in relation to any number of these controversial issues paul says that we have two tools to aid us in this decision making process let me show you what those two tools are Now, regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols yes we know that we all have knowledge about these about this issue about these issues, if we want to contemporize it. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. When we are deciding how we are going to respond to these different issues, we have tools, we have knowledge, and we have love. And Paul contrasts the two ideas in a fascinating way. He says that knowledge makes us feel important, but love strengthens the church. A more straightforward translation would be, Knowledge makes us arrogant, but love edifies. I like to say it this way. Knowledge puffs us up, 
love fills us up. Roy Lauren is a scholar on the book of 1 Corinthians, and he had several contrasts. He says, knowledge blows up, but love builds up. Knowledge inflates with conceit, and love moves with concern. Knowledge is selfish, and love is selfless. Thus, love becomes the adequate and proper Christian way of life. Some of you are objecting. You're going, well, wait a minute, Tony. You seem to be saying that knowledge is irrelevant because we need to be loving. There's nothing wrong with knowledge. I object to your point, sir. Are you advocating for biblical illiteracy? Not at all. Not at all. It's important that we study our Bibles. It's important that we study our Bibles, but it's important that we understand that knowledge of the Bible is not the goal. Knowledge of the Bible isn't our goal as we study our Bible. Becoming more like Jesus Christ is the goal. Becoming better at living out the love of God is the goal. Knowledge is a tool. Love is the goal. We can't underestimate the value of knowledge as we accomplish this goal. Here's what I mean. Knowledge of the Bible. Knowledge of the Bible helps us recognize God's will And just as critically as recognizing God's will, knowledge of the Bible helps us recognize how our will differs from His. So there's a story. Uh, Four men, they're traveling on a train together, and they're in a car. Three of them are engaged in a heated discussion on faith. And they soon realize that they have vastly different convictions and they're each trying to clamor to make their position the one that everybody agrees with and they are deadlocked. And the fourth man, who has been silent this whole time, looks up and says, gentlemen, I wonder if you might tell me the time. Each man pulls out his pocket watch and they tell the time. And they soon realize that the four of them can't agree on that either begin to have an argument. The fourth man who had been silent says, let me propose this, gentlemen. When we get to the terminal building, we will test our watches against the standard clock in the terminal. And they all agreed. They said, that's a great way to decide whose watch is correct. The fourth man didn't stop there. He went on. He said, gentlemen, we have a standard clock to judge the accuracy of our timepieces. We have a standard clock to judge the accuracy of our faith. It is the Bible, the Word of God. Here's my point. It's through the Word of God that we learn about the heart of God. It's through the Bible that we learn about the heart of God. But that's just the first step. As we apply the heart of God, it produces love. You see that progression there? We learn about the heart of God right here. We learn about our God who is a missionary who left His heaven to come to earth for our sake. We learn about a God who is selfish in His devotion to His creation. As we learn to apply that kind of selfless love, it produces love in us and those around us. Love is what it takes to use our freedom most effectively. Knowledge is great, but it's not the goal. Love is what it takes to use our freedom most effectively. Let's go back to our text. 
We're going to pick up in verse 4, and we're going to read through verse 8. And then a little bit later, we're going to do 9 through 13, all right? Um, So we're going to start with knowledge, and then we'll go finish up with love. So what about eating meat that's been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god. There's only one god. There may be many so-called gods in heaven and on earth. Some people actually worship those gods. But for us, there's only one God, the Father, by whom all things were created and for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. However, not all the believers know this. Some of them, they're accustomed to thinking of idols as being real. So when they eat food that's been offered to idols, they think of it as the worship of real gods. And their weak consciences are violated. It's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat it, and we don't gain anything if we do. All right, so meat sacrificed to idols. Can you eat it, yes or no? Yeah. Should you? Maybe. There's knowledge that helps us answer this question, and a mature believer in Corinth would have the appropriate knowledge to answer this question. All right, the kind of Christian who went to uh, the First Corinthian Christian Church Sunday school every Sunday. They came to the Sunday night Bible study in Corinth every Sunday. They'd probably have the knowledge to answer this question. So I'm going to quiz you. Do you have what it takes to answer this question correctly? It's a tough one. How many gods are there? One? Does anybody want a hint? Let me give you a hint, okay? Here, here we go. Here's our hint. Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god and that there is only one god. You guys did pretty good. You guys did pretty good. You must go to Sunday school and Sunday night service. Probably didn't need any help. Uh, we live in what theologians call a monotheistic world. We only believe in one god. We only believe there's one God. And since we only believe in one God, we can very maturely say that meat sacrificed to an idol doesn't matter because there's no such thing. So go ahead, eat. You're not honoring some other God because there is no other God. So eat your meat. It's kind of like in our church nursery. In our church nursery, we have a, a, a um, um, I don't know what the, it's a pretend nursery set, uh, kitchen set rather, and, uh, and that pretend kitchen set has a stovetop, it has an oven, has a microwave, and pots you can put on there, fake bananas, right, a piece of meat, piece of pizza, you get the idea. Uh, how many real meals that people can eat do you think have been served on that kitchen set? None of them, right, because it's just pretend. The same is true with meat sacrificed to idols. It's not honoring some other God because it's just pretend. Here's the problem. See, we we understand that that's not real. There is no God that is actually being sacrificed to, so it doesn't bother your conscience to eat that meat. We understand that, but the problem is the people of Corinth didn't. The people of Corinth didn't live in a monotheistic world. 
They lived in a polytheistic world. It was an epicenter for idol worship. There were shops that sold miniature idols. There were temples all over the place to real idols. There were tiny representations of the gods that were worshipped in Corinth. There was an idol in every window and on every corner. Idols from the Greek gods like Poseidon and Demeter and especially Aphrodite. And then there was the Roman pantheon of gods. And what it amounts to is that the people of Corinth chose gods much the same way that we choose cars today. Right? They, they would research which God had the most benefits for them. Well, I'm a young family. I probably ought to think about getting a minivan or uh, an, an SUV. Well, um, this is what our family is going through right now, and, and this is this particular God's specialty. Right, there's a dealer for this particular kind of car that's fairly close to my house. Maybe we'll try there. First, there's a temple to this God close to our house. This is the kind of car that we can afford. This is the kind of God that we can afford to worship. People in Corinth chose their gods very similar to how we choose vehicles today. They had a lot of different options. They had a lot of different options. So they shopped around, and all of those different gods had sacrifices that were made to them on a regular basis. And at some point, Somebody had a bright idea. They had a eureka moment. They said, hey, we're wasting an awful lot of meat. Why don't, after we sacrifice these animals, we take the meat that was sacrificed to these gods, and then we put it in the marketplace, we'll sell it for a discount. And everybody loved the idea. Right? The producers love the idea. They've got a brand new revenue stream. The markets love the idea because they've got more customers. And the consumer is saying, I can get ribeye for how much a pound? This is awesome. Everybody in Corinth loved the ideas of meat sacrificed to an idol. The mature Christian doesn't even have a problem with it because they know it's been sacrificed to a God that doesn't even exist. However, not all the believers knew this. Some of them were accustomed to thinking of idols as being real. So when they ate food that had been offered to idols, they thought of it as worship of real gods. And their weak consciences were violated. See, what may be no big deal to one person may be a very big deal to another person. So what do we do? Knowledge has given us the green light. Go ahead. Buy your discount meat. Knowledge has given us the green light. But what do we do when knowledge isn't enough? Let's go back to the text. It's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat it. And we don't gain anything if we do. But you must be careful so that your freedom doesn't cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. For if others see you with your superior knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has been offered to an idol? So because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer for whom Christ died will be destroyed. And when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong, you are sinning against Christ. So if I eat so if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. Let me just summarize that part of the text for you. If it's good for you and bad for someone you're with, 
it's bad for you. If it's good for you, if it's fine for you, if you don't have any problem with it, if it's good for you and bad for somebody you're with, it's bad for you. Jesus said it this way, there will always be temptation to sin, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? It'd be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to fall into sin. So watch yourselves. Some of you are going now, okay, I've heard the argument. I understand the different positions here. Some of you are going, well, it's best to never eat meat sacrificed to idols ever. Some of you are going, well, We'll just be careful. We'll make sure that we only eat that kind of meat when we're alone. Some of you are going, well, we'll just make sure that we never eat meat sacrificed to idols when new Christians come over. You know who's right? All of them. All of them. Um, You make your decision. You live that way. It's not wrong. It's when you make your decision a condition for someone else's salvation that we get into trouble. It's modernized the discussion. As if I'm not in enough hot water as it is. It's modernized the discussion. Some of you say it's best to never have alcohol. Some of you say only have alcohol around people who don't have a problem with alcohol. Some of you say, well, I'm going to have a glass of wine on my anniversary. You know who's right? All of you. All of them. See, it's not wrong. You make your decision and you live that way. Here's where you have to land on issues like Starbucks and Target and Home Depot and Disney and Nike and the NFL and politics and trick-or-treating and a thousand other issues. This is the Christian response. Are you ready? Differ, but don't divide. Differ, but don't divide. Differ on your opinions, but don't make it a requirement for someone's salvation. Differ on your opinions, but don't make it a test of fellowship. Differ on your opinions, but always consider the other person. Differ, but don't divide. Don't look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is how Paul concludes his argument in verse 13. He says, so if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. There's so much humility and love in that verse. It's worth committing to memory, and it's worth putting into action. Paul is willing that his personal body, that his personal health, that his nutrition, Paul is willing that his body would suffer instead of his brother's soul. Paul is willing that his body would suffer instead of his sister's soul. So how do we handle the question of our Christian freedom when it's an issue that isn't answered in the Bible? The answer? Let your freedom be controlled by your love. Let your freedom be controlled by your love. Consider the people around you. Consider the circumstances and what they've got going on in their lives that it may not be a big deal to you, but it may be to them. So maybe you have a friend over and you don't watch an NFL football game that day because you're honoring them and you're loving them. Maybe you're out with somebody and you don't stop at Target that day because you're honoring them and you love them. Or maybe you don't stop at Starbucks and on and on and on. Consider that other person. But if you're that other person and you're not with them, don't hold a grudge against them for stopping at Starbucks. 
and drinking their coffee while they watch football. Okay? Differ, but don't divide. If it's not loving, if it's loving to not eat meat, don't eat meat. If it's loving to not watch football when someone's over, don't watch football. If it's loving to not go to Starbucks when someone's with you, then don't go. And if you stand against those things, don't demand that someone else does. Let your freedom be controlled by your love. What do we say about at the beginning? Freedom isn't about what you can do. It's about what you should do. And what you should do is love your neighbor as yourself. What you should do is consider someone else as more important than yourself because that's the example of Christ. That's the example of Jesus. That's the example of Jesus who suffered for our sake. And not just by giving up meat. See, Paul Paul describes how Jesus suffered. Here's what he says. He says, when we were utterly helpless... Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now most people not be willing to die for an upright person, though some might be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Jesus died for us while we were helpless while we were powerless against sin, while we were completely unworthy of God's love and affection, He loved us still. While we were at our worst, Jesus died for us. Paul said, if it helps somebody, I'll give up meat. Here's what Jesus said, I love you so much that I'll give up my life. And that's what He did. He died for each of us so that we don't have to be held captive to our sins anymore. Jesus died so that we can be freed, so that we can have freedom. And my hope and my prayer for all of us is that we would use our freedom in Christ to love one another, that we would use our freedom in Christ to love our neighbors as ourselves, that we would use our freedom and Christ to consider others as more important than ourselves. That's my prayer for us. But maybe what you really need today is not to be challenged to exercise your freedom in love. Maybe what you really need today is freedom. Starts right there. Junior talked about it during our communion meditation. He said that our freedom begins right here. In baptism, where we aren't just we aren't just forgiven, we are completely cleansed, we are given a new life, we are no longer slaves to sin, we are freed. Not just freed and ready to go back to our old lives, we are freed and birthed into a royal family, the family of God. So maybe what you need today is freedom. I want to invite you to experience freedom today in baptism. You have an opportunity to do that. We're going to ask you to stand here in a second. I'll just stand now. Just stand now. And if what you need to do is experience freedom in baptism, why don't you come forward today and we'll baptize you. But right now, let's stand together and sing.